0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. So we're not in Genesis today. We are uh, going through the book of Genesis uh, in the sermon series, but we are departing from that today to focus our attention on text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10-17. through 17. Um, If uh, <clears throat> you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We do have Bibles for you here, so there are paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. You can pull one of those out and turn to page 554. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that home with you. Let it be our gift to you. Um, as Bob just mentioned in his prayer, <clears throat> we are going to focus on uh, the state of the church this morning. This is something that I started doing about four years ago where on every first Sunday of the year, I deliver what I'm calling a state of the church address or state of the church sermon. And uh, in the past years, we've been kind of looking at Revelation, the letters to the churches in Revelation and kind of moving through Um, chapters 2 and 3 there in Revelation, but this year we're going to part from that to focus our attention on this passage here in 1 Corinthians um, because this passage deals with an issue that I'm pretty convinced that we need to think about and reflect on uh, as believers and as members here at New Life, and the issue is unity in the church. Uh, This is uh, something that I think a lot of us have been thinking about. And this is an issue that has, I think, come under attack, uh, particularly in this past year for a number of reasons, and this is something that is of the utmost importance. D.L. Moody, years ago, said this, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. If we want the Spirit to work, we should pursue Unity. And that's what this passage here in 1 Corinthians is about, verses 10 through 17. Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul, and <clears throat> Paul is, uh, throughout this letter, addressing a number of problems that existed in the church at Corinth, um, very controversial issues like divorce and the filing of lawsuits against one another the use of charismatic gifts, and many other issues. Paul is addressing these issues in 1 Corinthians, and I think it's very instructive for us that the very first issue that he addresses in this letter is the issue of unity. It's the first thing he talks about. Among all of the issues and problems that the Corinthians were facing, Paul thought at the top of my list is unity. I think this illustrates the importance of, of this issue to Paul, and it should be important to us as well. So you might know that the church kind of doesn't really have a, a super good track record over the years when it comes uh, to unity. Uh, many stories of churches dividing for one reason or another. I mean, I think we should just say here at the outset that there actually are legitimate reasons for churches to split. I mean, this has happened in the past. Um, Maybe one of the best examples is the Reformation, right? I mean, that was a church split where Protestants, who through the work of people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, recovered the gospel that had been basically lost in the Catholic church at that time. And so there was a church split there. And I would say that was was legitimate. The gospel was lost. Uh, Our own denomination here, the Presbyterian Church in America, began in 1973 for a similar reason, the Southern Presbyterian Church, had strayed from the gospel. And so there were people who thought we we need to form a new denomination because we cannot fellowship in a denomination where the gospel is not present. And so our denomination was formed. I think that was a legitimate split. I do. But there are certainly a lot of examples of illegitimate splits. (laughs) And we hear the story, the cliched story is the church that can't agree on the color of the carpet in the foyer, And so they split. Now, I've never really known that to occur. Maybe it has occurred. I don't know. But I know a lot of churches have split over some very trivial, tiny issues. And some of you are old enough to remember controversies in the church back primarily in the 70s and in the 80s when there was a lot of uh, disputes about music, about whether we should have traditional music or contemporary music. And some churches would try to have two services. Some churches tried to blend the two, and some churches split because they couldn't get along. They couldn't figure out how to do both or how to choose one or the other. It was very controversial, and it was the occasion of much disunity in the church. Well, today, in my own judgment, and I think you'll probably agree, there have been a number of issues, it seems, particularly in this past year, that have been the occasion for some measure of Disunity or division. So, three things come to mind. One, social justice issues, Uh, questions about how do we deal with injustices in our world, in our nation, in our community, particularly with regard to racism. How do we deal with this? It's caused a lot of division. Issues related to our president and the recent election, it's caused a lot of disunity among people regarding their position on. Uh, This issue and then of course with the pandemic that we have been going through here uh, this past year the question of masks and whether to wear them and whether they should be mandated and whether there should be a lockdown and how should we approach this whole issue it's caused a lot of division and I don't mean just in the world I mean in the church there's been division in the church And all of these continue to threaten our unity here as a local body and as a denomination and as an evangelical church, more broadly speaking. And so I think we need to talk about this. And here's a text in 1 Corinthians that that speaks directly to this issue of unity and how important it is to Paul, again, and how important it should be to us. So, if you're able to stand, please do so, and I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Again, that's page 554 in your paperback Bibles. <clears throat> so, here's what uh, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name I did baptize also the household of Stephanas beyond that I do not know whether I baptized anyone else for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Holy Spirit of the living God, we need you to open our eyes and soften our hearts, to hear your voice speaking through your word now. Do that, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) So, we're just going to go through this passage and see what Paul has to say about this issue of divisions in the church. And the first thing we see that Paul does is that he offers forth an appeal for unity. Now, first of all, to establish the context here, I think it should be pointed out that this is not an appeal for unity to the church universal or, uh, or even to the church you know, denominationally speaking. This is an appeal for unity to a local congregation. And you can see that if you go to verse 2. and and this is where Paul indicates uh, the audience to whom he's addressing this letter. Verse 2, it's to the church of God that is in Corinth. There's a congregation there in Corinth. Uh, Corinth is a city that is in uh, modern-day Greece. At this time of Paul's writing, 2,000 years ago, it was a, a very sophisticated city, large city, cosmopolitan urban area, very pluralistic, a lot of different religions were uh, pursued there, and Paul came into that city and, and he planted a church, he started his own congregation there, and so there had been no churches there before, so when it says to the church of God that is in Corinth, that's most likely referring to just a small group of believers, a congregation, a local body, not unlike this one. And that's who Paul is speaking to, a local church. And as I have already mentioned, um, uh, there are a, a number of issues arising in this Corinthian church. And so what happened is the members of the church would write letters to Paul, saying, Paul, what do we do about this? And what do we do about that? And Paul would write letters and send them back. And that's what these letters are in our Bible, 1st and Second Corinthians. So Paul is sending this letter back, addressing, answering their questions, and again, the first thing he wants to address is unity. And then Paul makes his appeal, and this is how the passage starts in verse 10. I appeal to you, he says. I appeal to you. Now, he's approaching this in a very gentle and and tender way. I mean, you you know, Paul is not coming in, bringing down the hammer Uh, You know, it's not like his heart is filled with anger. And I think we see that just by the use of the word brothers, which is just a a term of endearment. And so Paul is uh, expressing himself as tenderly and kindly as he can here. Brothers, I I have an appeal to you. This is something I I need to talk to you about. And what is it that he wants? And he goes on, and it's pretty clear. And he says, here's what I want. Here's my appeal. I want you all to agree together. And the the Greek actually literally says, I want you all to speak the same thing. That's what that passage actually means. To be articulating the same kinds of things, not to be saying things that are in conflict and argument with one another. He goes on, he says, "I, I don't want there to be Any divisions, let there be no divisions among you. Now, again, he's talking to a local congregation. I don't think that this is a passage that would say the Reformation was unbiblical. I don't think he's talking about splits over the gospel. I think he's talking about local dissensions and factions that exist in a local congregation. Let there be no dissensions of that sort. And what I want, here's my appeal, as he goes on in verse 10... I want you to be united. I want you to be together. I want you to be in union in the same mind and in the same judgment so that you think about things in the same way, so that there's agreement in the judgments that you make about God and the world in which we live and the issues of the gospel. Now, you know, when you read this, you first of all might think, what, is this really true? Is he saying that we're supposed to agree on everything? I mean, are we all supposed to like the same foods and like the same music and, um, you know, have the same favorite movies or whatever? Is that, do we have the same favorite color? I mean, do we have to think exactly the same in every single way? No, that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not calling just for a vague unity for the sake of unity thing. He's not Uh, calling for what we're hearing on tv a lot with regard to the pandemic you know we're all in this together just this kind of loose vague kind of unity what paul is calling for here is a unity the same judgment and the same mind regarding the gospel that's what's absolutely central here and we know that because if you look back in verse 9 look what he says God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the unity, the unity that we have as a church is around God's Son, Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. That's the truth. That's the glue that holds us together. This is what we agree on. So when he says have the same mind, same judgment, it's about things like this. We all know we're sinners We don't deserve the love of God. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We need to agree on that. That God sent his son, sent Jesus into this world. That Jesus was the God-man who lived a perfect life in obedience to God. That he laid down his life. He gave himself. He bled on Calvary. He died. And he was resurrected from the dead. Literal, bodily resurrection. Not some spiritual resurrection. The man who went in came out in a resurrected body, and he lives today. Resurrected, ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now those of us who trust in him, we don't save ourselves by the things that we do, by our morality or our goodness. No, we trust what Jesus did. We agree on that. We're of the same mind on that. We're not saving ourselves by our works and our religion and our morality. And because we've been saved by this great God through Jesus Christ, we want to please him. And so we look to his word and we believe the Bible is the way God speaks to us. We believe this is authoritative and we submit ourselves to the authority of this book over all other voices in this world and culture. The Bible is our authority. We agree on that. We're of the same mind on that. And we know that there is a day coming when Jesus is coming again and he's going to bring history to a close and we're all going to stand before him and give an account of ourselves. We agree with that. We know that's going to happen. That's what gives us hope because the new earth is coming one day when all tears will be wiped away and all injustices will be made right. And we hope in that. We know it's going to happen and we agree on that. We're unified in that. There's a lot of things we might disagree on. But we don't disagree on those things. It's interesting, Paul uses the word fellowship of his son. We have fellowship with one another. But friends, we don't have fellowship with everybody. We don't have fellowship with people who reject the things that I just described to you. People who are unbelievers, people who are not Christians, they don't think they're sinners, they haven't believed in Jesus, they don't live for him, they don't regard his word highly. We don't have fellowship with them. We're not unified with them. We have friendship with them. (laughs) Yes, we're their friends. We love them. We reach out to them. We play with them. We work with them. We live with them. We don't have fellowship with them. The fellowship that we have is around the gospel. And the gospel has certain doctrinal points. It has assertions that are made that we either accept or reject. And so a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he said this, the whole tendency today is to discourage talk about doctrine and to urge that we work together, pray together, and evangelize together because doctrine divides. Let's not talk about the essence of the gospel because that might make us disagree. Let's just get along with everybody. But the fact is, there is no unity apart from truth and doctrine. And it is departure from this that causes division and breaks unity. When people depart from the gospel and they say I'm not so sure that Jesus is God. I'm not so sure the Bible is reliable. I'm not really sure that he's risen from the dead. I don't really think I have sins that need to be paid for on the cross. People start saying stuff like that. Now you're thinking I don't know if we have fellowship. I don't know if we ha- I don't know if we're united given the things you're saying. We might have to split. That that's that's totally legitimate. So I just want you to see this that when Paul is calling for unity and no divisions he's not talking about just with anybody indiscriminately it's a unity based on the gospel and we see this throughout the new testament there's always this emphasis on unity but unity connected to truth this is jesus speaking to the father praying the high priestly prayer and jesus says for their sake that's for the sake of his disciples i consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth in the truth I do not ask for these only, for his disciples at that time, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one. That's Jesus' desire. Unity in the truth. Here's Romans sixteen seventeen. This is Paul again. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. The doctrine of the gospel You've been taught that when people oppose that and depart from it, it creates division. So avoid them. So this is the same Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians 1. He's calling for unity in 1 Corinthians 1, but he's saying there are some people you need to avoid. And he says them both. We've got to hold them in balance. And then we have Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, you didn't, it's not all one, period. It's, you're all one in something. And that is a foundational truth that we call the gospel. So, there's an appeal to unity. It's very clear, right? This is what Paul wants of his church. And you might ask, why, why is this that Paul is so concerned about unity? Why is the New Testament so concerned about unity? Why is Jesus so concerned about unity? And I think the answer is because. One of the strongest proofs of the truth of the gospel is the unity of his people. This is one of the most persuasive ways that the world knows that the gospel is true. It's when they look at God's people and they see that there are no divisions among them. I read an article in USA Today about a year ago about political divisions in our country in the very first sentence says this, Americans are united in one thing, and that is that they're sick and tired of being so divided. We are sick of the divisions, right? We see them throughout our world, everywhere. What happens when those people out in the world who are sick of division come into the church and they find the church is just as divided as the world? That's a travesty. Jesus goes on. He says this in the high priestly prayer. The glory, again, he's speaking to the Father. The glory, Father, that you have given me, I have given to them, my disciples, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, you and me. Why? That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. When the world sees the church one, one, particularly in a time that is so controversial and divisive, but the church doesn't fall into the same patterns of the world, the world looks and says, God must be in that place. Because that's the only explanation I have for how people can be united in such divisive times. Friends, whatever your position is, (laughs) on social justice issues, and on the election, and on President Trump... And the wearing of masks, I assure you, unity in the church is more important than them all. Unity in the church is more important. No matter how strongly you hold to your position, church unity is more important. And so that's Paul's appeal, an appeal for unity. Now, why does he offer up this appeal? And the reason is because there's a problem. And (laughs) the problem is division. Division that exists in this Corinthian church. So, picking up on verse 11, there's a report that comes from this person named Chloe. We, we don't know anything about Chloe, who she is, or what was she, she was like, but she um, <clears throat> was part of a group, Chloe's people, and Chloe comes and reports to Paul that there is quarreling among the Corinthians. That word for quarreling, actually, is the same word used in Galatians 5 when there's a description of the works of the flesh. And it's translated in Galatians 5 as strife or discord. So Chloe comes and he says, she says, there's discord in the church, Paul. There's quarreling. There's, there's strife there. And the, the occasion for this strife, as we go on to verse 12, is we see that, that different members of the church in Corinthians, that they have different um, allegiances to different leaders and and teachers. And so, we see that some of them are are saying, I follow Paul. And so, this is Paul referring to himself. So, we can see why people might be tempted to follow Paul. He's this great apostle. He's writing the New Testament. And so, some people are like, yeah, I'm going to be a follower of Paul. But there are others who say, I follow Apollos. I don't follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Now, Apollos um, was a guy that Paul met in the city of Ephesus. It says in the book of Acts that Apollos was an eloquent man. So he was a really good speaker. And people were just drawn to him because he communicated so well. So some people said, I am of Apollos. But then others said, I am of Cephas. Cephas is Aramaic for Peter. So this is Peter, the Peter we know from uh, the Gospels and who wrote 1 and 2 Peter, a a very high-ranking individual in the early church. Some people said, no, Peter's my man. I'm going to follow Peter. And then lastly, At the end of verse 12, there are some who say, I follow Christ. Now, we might say that's the right answer, right? (laughs) These people who follow Christ, but Paul is uh, listing those people along with the others. So even those who are saying that they follow Christ must have been doing so with not the best motives. Uh, Apparently, they also were doing this in a divisive way, that they were excluding others because they probably thought, yeah, we follow Jesus and you who follow Paul, you don't even follow Jesus. I'm not even sure if you're a Christian. We are the ones who follow Jesus, you who have identified with Paul, Peter, and Apollos, not so sure about you. And so their claims were resulting in divisiveness. Now, notice here that Paul is not critiquing the teaching of these individuals, of Apollos or Cephas. I mean, Paul would have something to say about that. He's very concerned about doctrinal precision, but he doesn't even bring that up, so I think the assumption is that probably Apollos and Cephas were teaching something quite in line with the gospel. I mean, their teaching was probably very sound. The problem, though, for Paul is They're being divisive about it. It's it's not a heresy. It's not a false teaching issue. It's a divisiveness issue. And Paul doesn't even exempt the people that follow him. He lists them first. Some say, I follow Paul. You'd think that maybe Paul would want to throw them a bone or something. I mean, these are his own followers. But he says, I'm not even letting you off the hook, people. You people who claim me as your leader. Because you're doing this in a spirit of factions and cliques. There's a party spirit here. He goes on in verse 13, and he's just kind of exasperated. Is Christ divided? He's like, what does it matter with you people? Is Jesus divided up into sections? So one of you has a little piece of Jesus, and another of you has a different piece of Jesus? And he goes on, he says, was Paul crucified for you? Did I die on the cross for you, Corinthians? If I didn't, then why are you giving me such allegiance? I didn't pay the penalty for your sins. Jesus did. We are to unite around him. That's what Paul's point is here. He just, he, he's, just, he's not going to tolerate this divisiveness. It's like he sees there's distrust that's settling in in the church in Corinth. They're looking at each other with suspicion. I don't know about those followers of Apollos. I don't know about them they're up to no good. Those followers of Cephas, do you know what I heard about what they think and what they believe? I don't know about them. I don't think I'm going to church with them anymore. There's distrust, there's suspicion, and the same thing exists on these issues that I'm talking about. The same thing exists. It's like with regard to our, our, our president. It's like those who support him, some would say they're They have no concern for character. But those who won't support him, they're anti-American. When it comes to social justice issues and racism in particular, there's a a certain way to deal with racism. But if if you deal with it that way, you're a Marxist. But if you deal with it another way, you're a racist. Because you don't understand and you don't get it. When it comes to masks, it's like those who won't wear masks, they're, they're careless, they don't care. But those who do wear masks, they're driven by fear. Right? You've heard all these things being said, that these are accusations that are made in an attitude of suspicion and distrust. And Paul's confronting it and saying, I, I, won't, "I won't have it." Maybe some of you know about this book called "The Screw Tape Letters" uh, by C. S. Lewis. <clears throat> um, really fascinating book. And in this book C.S. Lewis gives this fictional account of a conversation that's taking place between two demons. All right, so one demon is named Screwtape, and he's kind of the mentor. And another demon is named Wormwood, and, and he's the, the, the apprentice or the kind of the pupil or the student. And Screwtape is giving advice to Wormwood and particularly its advice about how to destroy a Christian and how to destroy the church. And so, you know, whenever you see the word enemy in that book, it's referring to God because it's from the perspective of demons who call God their enemy. And so um, there's this conversation that's going on, and it's very interesting. There's a chapter in the book where they begin to talk about a current issue of the day. And so this was written many years ago, but the, the issue was in World War II in Britain, C.S. Lewis was British, and so he was writing in Britain, there was, there was controversy actually during World War II, even among Christians, about whether to engage in the war or not. And so there were some who were, uh, said, yes, we need, to, we need to fight. They were called patriots. And there were some who were like, no, 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 I don't think this is a good idea. And they were called pacifists. And so C.S. Lewis just brilliantly works this, uh, just writes this this, uh, account of the way these demons look at the situation. And they're like, this is perfect. What an opportunity for us to sow seeds of discord and dissension in the church. And so here's the, the passage and I know everything is kind of backwards, so it's kind of hard maybe to to follow, but so here's the demon, Screwtape, talking to Wormwood, and he's telling them how to deal with a Christian. So the hymn is referring to a Christian. He says, here's what you do. Let him, let the Christian begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of his religion. It's not a separate political issue anymore. No, it's bound up in his faith. That's the first step. Let them see these things as inseparable Then, here's the next thing you do, under the influence of partisan spirit, spirit of divisiveness, let him then come to regard it as the most important part. It's even more important than the gospel. It's, It's more important than sharing Jesus with people. It's more important than loving brother and sister. It's more important than going to church. What's more important is holding on to my position, whether it's patriotism or pacifism. And he goes on, provided that Meetings and pamphlets and policies and movements, causes and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity, his work in the church. He is ours, belongs to us. These are demons speaking. I don't think there's any question that the division in the church that occurs at at any time when it's illegitimate division, that it is a work of our enemy of Satan himself. I remember in seminary, I had a uh, professor named Jerem Barrs, a <coughs> uh, very humble, godly guy. I remember him telling a story, saying uh, he'd been at Covenant Seminary for 12 years, and he said, you know, we've never had any disagreement among the faculty at the seminary. And he said, the reason why is because just each of us respects the other's views more than our own. That's just that simple. That's how you pursue Unity. You just, you just have this basic assumption that people who think differently than you probably know more than you do. You respect their opinion more than your own. doesn't mean you're necessarily wrong. It's a, it's an, it's a posture of humility that Jerem was telling us about, and it resulted in unity at Covenant Seminary. Here's what Paul says, to kind of sum it up here, Ephesians 4, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Friends, are you eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Are you eager for that? I I didn't say, do you agree that this is right or true? Are you eager to do what you can do to maintain the unity of the Spirit? And if so, how are you showing that? What are you doing? So there's a problem of division in the church. That's why Paul does this appeal to unity. But then lastly, there's the priority of the gospel that we see pretty clearly here Um, through verses 14 to 17. The occasion here for the divisions in the Corinthian church are, as I mentioned, these people... Um, uh, committing themselves to different teachers, but it wasn't just their teaching. Apparently, it had to do with who baptized them. That was really the issue. So, um, you'll you'll see here that um, Paul says in verse uh, thirteen, "Or were you baptized in the name of Paul?" So now Paul's kind of getting to the issue. Apparently. People were saying, you know, Cephas baptized me, Apollos baptized me, and they thought there maybe were something superior in those baptisms, and so uh, they began to give their allegiance to these people o- over others, and um, it's very interesting how Paul handles this. It's, it's a very kind of a dismissive way in terms of baptism here. Basically, he just says, look, if this issue of baptism is going to divide us, I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you. Look what he says in verse 14, exactly that. I thank God that I baptized none of you. And then he remembers, well, okay, yeah, Crispus and Gaius, I baptized them. Um, Verse 16, he remembers also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I I don't know whether I baptized anyone. (laughs) So apparently it wasn't Paul's practice to baptize. That might strike you as a little bit odd. He's an apostle. You know, Jesus didn't baptize either. And, you know, why? I, I guess, you know, there's different... Thoughts about that? Maybe it's because they didn't want this kind of division to happen. I mean, imagine if Jesus baptized people and, and, and Apollos baptized somebody. I mean, imagine the division that would create. I was baptized by Apollos. Oh, yeah? I was baptized by Jesus. And so Paul says, you know, I kind of wish I didn't baptize anybody if this is going to result in disunity, if this is going to result in this kind of faction and dissension. And the reason why Paul can say this is because he realizes that baptism is secondary. It's a secondary matter. The gospel is primary. Baptism is secondary. Now, don't hear me wrong. Baptism is important. It's very important. Uh, The scriptures command it. Jesus in the Great Commission, he, he says... Go to his disciples. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is important. If you're a Christian here today and you've not been baptized, you need to be baptized. And you can come and talk to me. We'd be delighted to baptize you right here at New Life. If you're a Christian and you've not been baptized, you need to be. But friends, that baptism is not going to save you Baptism does not save. Baptism of infants doesn't save the infants, as we tell you that over and over here. But you know, baptism as adult doesn't save you any more than baptism as an infant. There's no power for salvation in the waters of baptism. Just like this wedding ring doesn't necessarily make me married to my wife, it's a symbol of my marriage to my wife. That's it. And baptism is the same way. It's a symbol of the gospel. But it's not the gospel in itself. It points us to the gospel. I don't mean to trivialize it. It's important. You should be baptized if you haven't been baptized. To refuse to be baptized is disobedience. It's important, but it doesn't save. It's secondary. The gospel is primary. And if I can apply this one more time to our current situation, I don't for a minute want to suggest that who we vote for, is unimportant. It's not unimportant. It is important. I don't mean for a second to suggest that social justice issues are unimportant. They're they're very important. How we approach injustices in our world, how we oppose the evils of racism, that's, that's very important. And how we handle ourselves in a pandemic, how we proceed with wisdom and prudence in this very unprecedented and unusual time It's important. It's very important. But they're all secondary. Just like baptism. They don't rise to the level of the gospel. And therefore they shouldn't divide us. If baptism wasn't supposed to divide the Corinthians, how can we say these lesser issues should divide us? The the gospel is, is primary. No one is saved by by, by being, going through some outward ritual or about some religious custom and just submitting themselves to the waters of baptism. That doesn't save you. It's, it's through your personal belief in Jesus. That's what saves. As a response to that, you want to get baptized, but that's not what saves you. Baptism, it's your belief, your repentance, faith in the gospel. And I think we can apply that to the issues that face us now. So this is Paul's point here at the end of this passage. There's a priority of the gospel over all other issues. During the founding of our nation, 200 or so years ago, there was a lot of discussion about independence from Britain. Maybe you know your American history, but um, there was a lot of discussion about that. In fact, there was a lot of division among the founders of our nation about whether to separate from Britain or not. Independence was a big thing, you know, I mean, if we break off from Britain, uh, that could mean severe penalties. So there were some who were like, yes, we should fight for independence. There were others who said, no, we should remain loyal to the crown. We should remain loyal to, to Britain. And there was arguing and there were disputes in Congress. And a lot of people stood up and said, you know what, this is a time when we really need to be united. This is a time when we need to pursue harmony. And it's reported that Ben Franklin stepped forward and said, friends, in this case, we must hang together, or we'll hang separately. Kind a little bit of humor there, but it's a very serious issue. We've got to hang together, because if we don't, we might hang separately. If this doesn't work out, we're going to die at the hands of the British crown. They'll hang us for this. It's like the stakes were high in their mind. Therefore, we've got to hang together. We've got to be united The stakes were high for them, friends. The stakes are higher for us as Christians. Not because we're going to be executed or, or, or be hanged, but because we have a Savior who hung on a cross for our unity. He gave his life to pay the penalty for our sins that we might be united in love with one another, that we might speak the same things, that we might be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The stakes are high for us as well. And so in this address, State of the Church 2021, this is what I'm going to call on us to do as a congregation, friends. Let's, let's seek, let's pursue unity among the brothers and sisters here at New Life. Let's seek and pursue unity with our Mother Church Westminster and with our Daughter Church City Hope. Let's be eager for that. Let's pursue unity with all of those in our community who love the gospel and obey the gospel and exalt Jesus. It's not just us. Let's seek unity with them. Let's seek unity and pursue the bond of peace in our denomination. Let's seek unity among all believers throughout the entire world who call Jesus Savior and Lord. We are one in Him. And as we pursue that, we're doing it so that the world would know that the Father sent the Son out of love for us and for all those who would look to him in faith. Let's pursue unity together in 2021. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to our current issues, concerns, controversies. Lord, your word is so eternally relevant. It just amazes us. Thank you for the help we receive from it. And help us, Father, by your Spirit to be a unified people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.